plebiscite on same-sex marriage passed overwhelmingly a major milestone in the long struggle for marriage equality to talk about the results and what lies ahead. We're joined by Ros Ward, co-founder of the Safe Schools Program. Welcome. Thank you for having me. What were your emotions on the night of the plebiscite? Um, Well, on the night before the plebiscite, I was quite anxious because I guess it's just been a, a crazy kind of period. And even in the morning, I didn't quite realise um, how anxious I was feeling until it was like quarter to ten and I started to feel a bit sick. I'm like, why am I so... I can't stand still. I was just walking laps around uh, outside the front of the State Library where now probably everybody knows the live feed to oh, the man. ABC. <laughs> what a moment that was. <laughs> flicking in and out. Everyone was just, hot, you know, just seemed to add to the drama of the occasion. Um and then the result coming in, I think initially I, everyone seemed to be overwhelmed with emotion, but um, it's sort of starting to process like what did it mean immediately. And I think a lot of the people around me seem to be disappointed with it, whereas I thought it was pretty good. So beforehand, <laughs> were you confident kind of analytically I mean you know one tends to have an emotional reaction to these but were you sort of expecting it, it to be a win yeah definitely and all of the polling um had been favorable the ter- you know the higher the turnout the better it was looking for the yes campaign um it just seemed like unless there were some major things that were going wrong like people lying to pollsters which you know happens or pretending that they were voting yes when they weren't really voting at all um it had to be a yes and i think then the question was just like well how emphatic a yes would it be okay so let's talk about that i mean one of the things that's remarkable about this campaign is how quickly sentiment changed and how quickly the yes vote 
grew from 2004 when Howard um, legislates to make marriage unequal. And I think at, at the time there was... Even at that, at that point, there was 40% of people who were in favour of equal marriage. And I think it was by 2007, only three years later, the polls were showing a majority sentiment in favour of equality. I think that's right. And very quickly, and the yeah. sentiment just kept growing yeah, and yeah. growing. What do you think made the campaign so successful? I mean, to put that in historical context, we think about other struggles for major reforms. It often takes a much, much longer process to get you know, a majority sentiment. Why do you, what made this campaign so successful? Um, well, I think, first of all, the demand is pretty clear-cut. Sometimes when it's a broader trying to change um, uh, kind of people's opinions about social questions, it's harder to measure. It's less obvious what you're asking them to support or not support. Whereas this was a very clear-cut campaign based on what was initially a very blatant act of homophobia from the Howard government. Um, and so to have this demand, which seems very, uh, you know, obviously one way or another, based on a homophobic thing and a campaign that started straight away to um, try and win people's support in a public and proactive and activist kind of way. It's also, I think, that it's a civil rights question, um, a clear uh, example of discrimination that I think is then opened up the potential for the campaign to start mobilising people which I think on the left at the time, at the beginnings of the campaign, was not really understood as why it would be a good campaign. People just focused on, are we, you know, what do we feel about marriage, rather than here's a clear-cut civil rights uh, question that can potentially mobilise a huge number of people into activism. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, it's sort of forgotten now, but in the early phases of the campaign there were... I wouldn't say a lot, but there were quite a few people on the left who were saying, well, marriage is a conservative institution. It's yeah. about state regulation of sexuality. It's connected to you know, the, the nuclear family. Why is this something that we want to campaign for? And in fact, there was a bit of an argument from some people anyway saying that this was in fact a reactionary demand and the campaign was not progressive at all. What, what do you think about that argument looking back on it? Um, well, I don't think it's a surprise um, that... There are you know, people on the, who consider themselves um, on the left, on the radical left, queer activists who, in the tradition of gay liberation in many ways, um, want to reject uh, all of the strictures of kind of normative patriarchal capitalist society, however people talk about it. But, um, yeah, it was... I think there was always space in the campaign, though, for there to be a campaign around the demand for equality and a critique of marriage if you wanted to do that. But what happened in the early days was that people just turned up and uh, like actively counter-protested <laughs> in the very first few um, campaign activities. Uh, like queer radicals came and did a counter-protest, which, you know, it, it didn't take off really, but um, those debates have run on and on throughout the whole campaign. There's always been people around the fringes still making that argument but it was interesting when the postal ballot um, came about that a lot of those people then got in behind the campaign. Mm. Let me ask you about the role of the Labor Party in the campaign. I mean, we saw certainly the celebrations, Bill Shorten was quite 
prominent. I think he might have even been there at the state. He was, yeah. 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 And um, he got pe- covered in glitter and ra- rainbow, <laughs> whatever it was. Yeah. And um, Penny Wong has also been quite yeah. prominent in the celebrations. What role did Labor play in the campaign? Well, they definitely played a role in the campaign around the postal survey, but um, I feel like uh, there's a lot of amnesia around um, the fact that there was seven years of Labor government um, between 2007 and 2000, and whenever it was, 13, six years, um, where they could have legislated for marriage equality. And Penny Wong, Julia Gillard's government, uh, were openly against marriage equality. And one of the things I think we can credit a bit to the campaign is the fact that Labor were forced to change their position. So they changed the party platform and then now have made it a question of, uh, you know, they're distinguishing themselves from the Liberals supporting marriage equality. If you vote Labor, you'll get marriage equality. And then coming out in full activist support of the postal survey, including uh, trade union movement. I, I wondered um, whether the Labor Party's initial stand in supporting um, John Howard's amendment of the Marriage Act, mm. essentially making it a bipartisan process to, to, to legislate marriage inequality, contributed in, in, some, in some, a perverse kind of way to the success of the campaign in that it became necessary right from the start to have a sort of street focus, to have protests because it was clear that the Labor Party wasn't going to support this unless people actually rallied. Do you think there's anything in that? Yeah, I think that's probably um, true, that there wasn't some party that was going to be the saviour of the demand. Um, so you had to uh, rail against sort of all of them to try to start um, winning people over. Uh, but, you know, there was still the tactical question of then, well, do we try one by one to lobby individu- individual Labor members? Do we try to win Gillard? Do we try to... Um, do we concede to some sort of civil partnerships, which is what the Labor Party offered at one point, a secondary uh, relationship recognition? And so there were a lot of um, debates to be won to keep it a focus, to keep the campaign um, activisty on the streets, trying to mobilise mass numbers of people and not um, compromising on marriage equality means marriage equality. The other debate that came up, well, not really debate, but the the other sort of strategic position that the campaign took was um, opposition to a plebiscite. And I wonder now, looking back on it, given the ultimate success of the yes vote in the postal survey, was the campaign right to call for the plebiscite to be blocked in the Senate? I mean, it, it did occur to me that uh, had a plebiscite taken place with ballot boxes and, you know, the traditional forms yeah. of voting with, where people could hand out leaflets in the streets, that the yes vote would almost certainly have been higher? Well, potentially. I mean, the, <laughs> there's a lot we could speculate about. I think it was right of the campaign, though, to, to stand against the plebiscite um, for the primary reason that uh, it was supposed to be a blocking tactic of the right. And I think for whatever reasons, they had thought that there was a chance that a vote would come back no. And even if it didn't, it would push it along the road, it would create more um, disunity in the Liberal Party, it would continue to give the no side the opportunity to run the arguments about religious freedom or whatever. Um, 
so I think, yeah, the the reason for blocking it is to say that the Liberals are trying to stall the path to equality. Okay, uh, the other argument that, that we've heard um, a lot during the debate, and even more so in the wake of the debate, was um, the consequences of the plebiscite on mental health. Um, psychologist Liz Short and Sharon Dane wrote an op-ed talking about... Um, the results from Ireland and the spike in um, call-outs for mental health services. And we've seen um, since the plebiscite people saying that, in fact, did happen. Was that your experience? Uh, well, I think it's pretty hard to ignore that that uh, seemed to be a um, pretty real experience for a lot of people. And actually a lot of people who you know thought that they'd been through um, some difficult moments and experienced prejudice and discrimination before did find the whole experience very um, challenging on, on just your mental health and your day-to-day life. I mean, it, like, it's two sides of the same coin in many ways, that the opportunity to have all of these conversations about sexuality, about gender even, is really positive, and for people to show their active support uh, is a really great thing, and I think there's a lot of that that hasn't um, been talked about as much as the negative side of it. But if you're going to be having all of those conversations, some of them are not going to be going the way that you want. And if that's with your family members or your colleagues at work or someone, you know, a, a student on your course or whatever, it can create this whole um, tension that wasn't there before if nobody would, had been talking about it. So you get to have the brilliant moments, I think, of people supporting that you didn't expect and, and all of the visible stuff that happened, you know, like riding around the streets of the inner north is just a sea of rainbows and it mm. feels really nice. But then that's not the same experience if you're in a country town somewhere or, you know, places where the people around you are actually now arguing the case for no, we don't think that you should have equal rights and and actually we're just homophobes, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason why I wanted to ask you is I wondered on your thoughts on what the implications of those mental health consequences are for activists going forward? Because it it struck me that almost any campaign for the rights of the oppressed will spur a backlash from from the right. And say, for instance, I'll ask you in a a little while about what's happening with with, um, safe schools now, but a future campaign for safe schools will presumably spark a similar kind of homophobic reaction for the right. What does it mean then um, if people are suffering these, you know, people are reporting these negative mental health consequences? What, con- what, what, what response should activists have to that in terms of um, building campaigns going forward? Well, I, I mean, there's a case to be made for all of the kind of services and provision of support and stuff for people to be able to um, get the help they need. And we know that uh, finding people who understand... Um, the queer LGBTIQ plus experience um, to f- get support from those people uh, is limited, that there aren't enough of those people around to provide that. But I don't know. I think, yeah, you're right that if you're, if you're campaigning for something, there's going to be opposition. That's the point of trying to make um, progress socially, that if it, if it would just happen without opposition, we would have done it already. So... I think there's a certain degree that of um, uh, just accepting that reality and trying to find ways. I think 
the more collectively we can do things, the more um, you don't feel like you're just this individual banging your head against a brick wall. I think for me that's the thing of being part of the campaign in a group, being part of a political organisation means that um, you not only have a perspective on why things are happening the way they're happening and the kind of the politics of it, but you also have people around you all the time who are going through the same campaign. A kind of emotional as well as political support. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the results of the plebiscite are still being digested, but we can kind of sense the narrative that's starting to be spun around them, around those results from the right. And it's, it's been quite a strange experience yeah. watching these these narratives being put together. And one of the main ones seems to have been um, the focus on Western Sydney, where the no vote was relatively large, not, not massively large, yeah. but relatively large. And... You know, the various conservative tub thumpers have been saying, have pivoted from basically supporting the no vote to now saying that the large no vote in Western Sydney shows that ethnic communities are homophobic, that there's a real problem with multiculturalism and so on. What's your response to the Western Sydney result? Well, I think, yeah, you're right. There's still a, there's still work going on to um, sort of explore what really happened. I mean, it's also the case that... Uh, you don't know how individual people voted in the ballot. You have the um, count from the particular seats, but that's the level of um, analysis that we can have. So, yeah, it, it, we make broad generalisations about these things. And um, obviously they've gone uh, way too far in the case of Western Sydney and without really looking closely at um, the character of those areas and I think some of the stuff that I've been reading about um, the evangelical churches in Western Sydney um, some of the stuff about uh, the Christian community organisations like even when you look at the numbers of um, people who are actually Muslim in those uh, areas and the fact that the Yes campaign didn't really do any campaigning because the focus was uh, on the on the main yes campaign was mobilising people who would vote yes to vote yes because of the postal thing being such a, a high bar to get people involved. So there's a lot of different things going on and it's very easy, even for Malcolm Turnbull, I think, who did say, he made that connection as well, to somehow connect then progressivism with Australian values when <laughs> who's leading the charge on the no campaign? It's all these like true blue <laughs> yeah. Aussie you know, blokes. It does seem totally bizarre to be having this argument that somehow Muslims were to blame for the no vote yeah. when the Anglican Church gave a million dollars to the no campaign just before. Oh, yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's... But that the fact that that even can get up shows you something about, you know, broader Islamophobia in, in Australian politics, that the Islamophobia that comes from the centre of politics makes it easy for even sort of people who would think themselves to be, uh, you know, small old liberal, left-leaning, writing pieces in the conversation or wherever about Muslims, you know, even questioning that. Um, that's been, you know, the space has been set up by this by the war on terror and all of the stuff that's happened since 9-11. And I think it would be the case that it would be reasonable for Muslims in Western Sydney to f- have a community that's quite 
uh, tight-knit and focused around mosques and whatever and to be quite closely connected with religious leaders and maybe, you know, go along with what they say about um, marriage equality if that's what they're saying because the rest of Australia, you know, the rest of the community around them is so Islamophobic and racist that Mm. why wouldn't you just be... Uh, and I keep actually, it to yourselves and think, well, whatever, I'll vote no. As you say, more research needs to be done on teasing out the implications of the vote. It was kind of interesting, though, that while the no vote in Western Sydney was relatively high, I mean, I, I saw various people pointing out that suburbs in Melbourne, for instance, that were associated with a high Chinese population or a high um, Muslim population actually voted quite strongly yes. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean... B- People talk about um, multicultural communities. It doesn't mean it. That's sort of like a meaningless phrase, but it's sort of used to wipe over all of these different um, diversities within those communities. And I think one of the most convincing um, analyses I've read so far is about connections with evangelical churches uh, and religious organisations rather than anything to do with culture or race or ethnicity. That's a totally different question. What do we know about the class base of the vote? Again, this was an argument that was being floated around tentatively and didn't seem to be being pushed by the right as much as the Muslims voted no meme. But there was a sort of sentiment that the white working class was voting no and it was wealthier people who were voting yes. Yeah, I don't don't think there's any actual evidence for that. I think that's, again, based on like looking at the whole electorate, the rich ones like Turnbull's electorate or whatever, that had high yes votes. I think from what I've seen, it's a really, it's a cross-class thing on both sides. Do you think there are lessons from the vote in terms of how campaigners need to address populations outside, I guess, the, the left's current base in the inner suburbs? I mean, should the campaign in Western Sydney have been run differently? Oh, I think plenty of people have got lots of ideas about how it could have been run differently um, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of sort of post-mortem of the campaign but you, 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 the reality is that um, you know there are always a limited amount of resources in campaigns that people make uh, strategic tactical decisions about um, where to run uh, you know, where to invest in a campaign. And I think the fact that Melbourne and Sydney were the two highest electorates where there were rallies of 20,000, 50,000 people, um, there was a lot of campaign activity in the inner cities, I think shows the correlation between where you can be active and and convincing people um, to vote the way you want uh, in the survey. So, yeah, I'm sure. And I think there are probably some basic things there are some things that could have happened perhaps um, that were overlooked um, around translations of uh, material. And it's the same with the safe schools um, debate that there was tons of uh, propaganda about lies about what safe schools was supposedly doing that were in um, Chinese circulated in communities and um, I think in other languages as well and there was no response. So people had no other way of knowing what it was about. I think that's probably true in this case. Yeah, and we have to put this into context for a voluntary 
poll, this was an overwhelming response. I mean, it was a landslide victory for the Yes campaign. So yeah. I'm interested... And a bigger turnout than the Brexit vote, interestingly. Yes. Yeah. It's extraordinary, particularly given that the argument for the right for so many years was this is a fringe issue that nobody cares about. Yeah. Okay, given the overwhelming Yes vote, what are the political implications of that? In, in the broader sense, I, I, I guess, we now have this expression, you know, etched in the ballot boxes that um, the homophobes are a minority in Australian society on this issue in a way that in the past they always would have described themselves as a silent majority. Yep. We, we now know that they're not the silent not majority. Not true. You can't <laughs> say that anymore. Yep. What does that mean? What well, are the political implications of that? Uh I think there's a lot of blustering around in Canberra at the moment trying to trying to work it out, particularly from the right, because for so long they have relied on the argument that there is a silent majority of Australians who have essentially socially conservative attitudes and sexuality is the most obvious one that um, social conservatives think that it's clear that, you know, people don't really want to talk about it, but if you made them talk about it, they wouldn't really be comfortable with, with gay people <clears throat> and certainly not... Uh, with anything to do with gender identity or trans issues. So they can't run that argument anymore. And I think it would be really great if um, there could be a little bit more kind of driving home of the victory. Um, I know the Labor Party have now said that they uh, will reject any additional amendments to the Smith bill, but um, I I think there's space to do more than that, really. Okay, I want to ask you specifically about the religious liberty stuff in, in a minute, but just on the general political ramifications. For instance, the Australian Christian lobby has been a familiar fixture of mainstream politics now for a, a long time. Every prime minister since, God, I don't know, since Howard has regularly yep. attended their events, has spoken at them. I mean, you know, Shorten was hobnobbing with them a few years ago. We now know that they represent very, very few people. Do you think we will see the disappearance of these people or at least the minimisation of their role? Um, I highly doubt that. Given that Scott Morrison wants to say that he speaks for the 40% of the no vote, you know, there's 40% uh, I think is enough for them to say that there's still a, a constituency that needs representing of social conservatives. I think they'll be Ill. they'll be thinking about different ways um, of framing some of the arguments around gender and sexuality, and they, uh, you know, they've immediately gone back to the schools question and parents and all of that kind of stuff. But I can't see the Australian Christian lobby um, going anywhere, and they haven't. None of them have been particularly uh, reticent in the days after the results come out. Okay, let me there was this awkward moment where they had half an hour of the empty stage at the no. <laughs> um, press conference, but after that they came out and they had things to say. So, okay, let me put it another way. Then, do you, do you think, for instance, that Labor will now stop pandering to them? I mean, because the argument previously was we need the support of these people. These, this is an election-winning constituency. It's now clear it's not an election-winning constituency. Will Labor now say, you know, we won't go to ACL conferences, we won't mm. pander to the homophobes in the right-wing unions, and so on? I would like to think so, but I. I'm sceptical about that because, you know, the other thing that people have found uh, challenging to put together is the fact that those Western Sydney seats were Labor seats. So actually what you've got much more is a problem for the Liberals because their constituency 
is not all these social conservatives. No. Actually, the seventy-five percent voted yes in in, in in Warringah, yeah, in Abbott's seat. And then, so you've got Labor then maybe thinking, well, maybe what what do we need to do about our constituencies that are more socially conservative? So they're both in um, awkward situations with what they previously kind of had had thought about people's positions. But then again, you can just say um, this is one specific uh, anomaly and move on doing the same thing. Well, because I, I wondered about the effects of this on the widening schisms within the Liberal Party. You know, everyone knows there's a war going inside. Yeah. Um, it's very fun to watch. <laughs> but again, I mean, the... The claims for the Abbott wing of the party was that we can win things. You know what I mean? That the, yeah. the Turnbull is a loser. We speak for this silent majority. I wonder now if we're starting to see the formation of a socially conservative, a modern version of something like de- the old Democratic Labor Party, where you end up with this kind of rump of social conservatives who can't win anything in their own right, but then act as, in the same way as the DLP acted as a right-wing pressure group on the Labor Party, that the Cory Bernardi group and possibly an Abbott faction ends up playing that kind of, I don't know, election spoiling um, spoiling role within the Liberal Party, where people like Turnbull are just constantly, you know, under threat from this right-wing rump. Well, I think that's how it is at the moment in, in a lot of ways. The question is whether they will stay inside the Liberal Party or not, but um, I think they've got more to gain from staying inside the party than trying to f- form something outside of it. And, you know, they still want the success. I think if Abbott wants to win his seat in the next election, he has to stay in the Liberals. So, yeah, I don't think there's a way um, to resolve any of those tensions i feel like that's going to go on uh. okay let's go back to the specific issue that's arisen in the wake of the plebiscite the question of religious so-called religious liberties what's your position on the possibility of religious exemptions um, is, is there is there any issue in this well is that really a thing? No. <laughs> I think it's rubbish. Uh, I don't think there should be any um, legislated for uh, right to discriminate. I think it's part of trying to reassert that social conservatism in different ways. I can't believe so many people go along with it to think that, oh, maybe there's something in it. Maybe you do need you know, some conscientious objection to baking a cake for somebody if you find out that it's for a gay wedding instead of... Who knew that um, bakers were such a a central position in Australian society? I think that's because it was an American example that that was a full legal case about a baker refusing to bake a cake for a gay wedding. So I just found I found the whole thing. Now everyone talks about bakers. The idea that someone whose occupation is based on um, selling products for weddings would be concerned about the fact that more people could get married just seems totally bizarre. It is backwards. Yeah, anyone selling any kind of service and. Yeah, I, don't, I just don't think there's anything in it. I don't think there should be any religious exemptions. I don't think there's a problem with um, religious discrimination. I don't think anyone is trying to stop parents talking to their kids about whatever bigoted ideas they have. And so what do you think is likely to happen now? I mean, you, one would 
think, one would like to think that the overwhelming size of the yes vote should put those people very much on the defensive. Do you think they are going to be able to, you know, start to create these various loopholes or at least or even just create a level of confusion mm. that keeps the thing dragging on forever? I think Turnbull is very keen to get it through before Christmas. I think hopefully, in some ways, hopefully that will happen. Um, but the Dean Smith bill, which is the one that has spent a lot of, they've spent a lot of time negotiating about already, Labor and the Liberals and the Greens, since February have come to this consensus about this bill being the right balance. It does contain some religious um, exemptions. I think it probably will go through unamended, but they will still, I, th- I don't think any of that's going away. You know, what's the thing about Philip Ruddock? being le- leading a commission about the question of religious freedom. It's like this sort of vampire has risen from, from the tomb, seeing Philip Rudder back on your TV holding forth about human rights. Yeah, and he's the one who introduced the 2004 amendment to the Marriage Act. Philip Ruddock. Ha, I did not know that. So the irony of that, that goes all the way back, and here he comes to save the day for religious freedom. Okay, Leaving aside the specifics uh, of these details, though, do you imagine that anyone will come back to the question of marriage equality? Is this question now definitively settled? Yeah, I think so, definitely, which is good. (laughs) Okay, and what are the implications of all of this for safe schools? I mean, that's the program that you're associated with, the co-founder of it. The right did use safe schools as a bogey. I mean, it's it's come up again as a bogey in the Queensland election so has the the scale of the yes vote made um safe schools more likely or has the fact that safe schools has now become this kind of incantation of the right made the the um future of safe schools more um in peril well i think it's hard to say obviously definitively what's going to happen in the future but um I quite like the fact that uh, Lyle Shelton said that the postal ballot is a referendum on safe schools. So if he said it was that, then you know, what, for once I'll take his word for it and <laughs> say that we definitively won that people want safe schools um, and want uh, all students to um, feel good about who they are and be able to learn and whatever. So all of the arguments about why it's needed still exist. I think they can be made uh, even stronger now by the fact of all of the distress and the um, pressure and the debate means that there's a whole generation of young people in schools now in Australia that have been through this public, massive national debate about who they are, their identities, what their value is in society. And so for me, that makes the case that schools have to be a safe space. You have to be able to have conversations about this, um, have your questions answered, have your teachers um, provide supportive environments, be able to, you know, do all the things that Safe Schools advocates for. Whether that is now in the form of a program that has the name Safe Schools, I'm not sure if that's a sensible thing to just keep um, pushing. But there's also a whole layer of young people who feel very deeply connected with the name Safe Schools and the concept and what that stands for that will want to fight for it, I think, and a whole um, layer of teachers as well and parents who really support it. So I think it's a tricky one and it's not 
necessarily something I'm I'm going to be directly involved in, but people who want a program in schools now that addresses LGBTIQ questions to think about, do we want to continue with safe schools that can mobilise people, that people know what that's about, or do we want to just try and find ways to get things happening straight away, get funding for um, programs in schools um, and maybe not call it safe schools. So, and what is the current status of those programs, whether we're calling them safe schools or using a different name? What states are operating them and what states aren't operating them? Well, nationally, the program officially finished uh, in July this year, so it's, it's over. Um, the national funding is finished. In Victoria, it's still running through the Department of Education um, and in other states, it's sort of, and it's definitely running in South Australia under a slightly different name. There are programs happening in Queensland, and I know it's um, part of the election platforms of the two parties is whether there is something or not. Uh, I think there's different types of things happening in Tasmania. There's still a safe schools program um, in Western Australia that's supported by the Labor Party, but not by the Liberals. So it's just become this. Um, divide between Labor governments supporting it, Liberals are never going to support it again, I don't think. And what's the relationship in your mind between the kind of support that a program like Safe Schools operates um, for students and the social change that takes place outside the schools? I mean, we've had something, we've had this massive, we've had this massive plebiscite, yes, vote, indicative of a broader change in social attitudes. How important is that um, victory, which is not a safe schools program in itself, but it's a social victory, how important is that in terms of making kids feel accepted, making schools safer in and of themselves? I think it's very important. That's why um, when the No campaign put me on one of their TV ads making the connection at an equal marriage rally between safe schools happening, being a great thing, and marriage not being equal, that those two things seemed very obviously wrong to students in schools, that they were being told it's okay to be who you are, to be same-sex attracted, to be gender diverse, and them knowing that ma- that they couldn't marry in the future the person they wanted to if, if it was somebody of the same gender. So... Um, I think those high-level legislative uh, discrimination is really important to how people feel about themselves and um, it'll be a massive step forward when the legislation actually passes and that people can see, uh, you know, the outbreak of gay weddings that are going to happen all over the place. All of that frames the way that you see yourself, I think, as a young person. And I think the fact that safe schools had existed before the marriage equality campaign really came to a head around the postal survey was important in some ways for preparing the ground for um, initially young people feeling good about themselves, that there was then this debate and controversy and they had to sort of uh, come to terms with that. And then the postal survey, but then we won. And I think what I really want to get across more broadly is that we won um, this is yeah. an amazing victory, and that yes, we can analyse the no vote. Yes, there are you know people who voted no in the community, but this is like a historic 
massive victory. And my favourite analogy is uh, if it was a federal election, you'd have a lower house with 133 yes MPs and 17 no MPs and a full Senate of yes people. Imagine if a political party could achieve that. Their opposition would be wiped out. They'd be, you know, they'd have to, they'd be done. Yes. And we're, we're not having that, which is really frustrating. And people aren't trying to say, you're done, you're finished. We're not accepting any religious amendments. They're sort of just saying, oh, we need to still come together in the spirit of compromise. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, when I was, when I was at school, there were very, very few role models available to you of somebody who was gender diverse, gay, anything other than yeah. very traditional ideals of Australian, you know, um, gender roles. And it's been kind of quite extraordinary over the last few years to see, you know, so many celebrities coming out and saying, yes, I support equality. These huge rallies, um, the biggest rallies ever in Australian history for... Um, you know, for 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 support of um uh, of queer people, and I can't help but think if you were at school at the time and suddenly you saw this mass outbreak of support, it would be quite transformative. Yeah, I think it. I think it definitely um, can be, and I think you know, there's all the the young people out there in rural and regional Australia. It, you know, top of the news, there's a fifty thousand people in Sydney. Even if you're not there, I think that that surely has um, a positive impact that there'll be someone around you or there'll be teachers at school or or people that you know who have voted yes or have campaigned for yes and there's always going to be people that you didn't really expect um and I think all of that makes a difference for me even personally I feel like it's definitive now that Australia is um not the big homophobic place that you can sort of have thought maybe it was before. I did see that statistic about um, Tasmania where homosexuality was only decriminalised in the 1990s, not very long ago, and yet in the postal plebiscite recorded above average yes votes. Yeah. It's quite striking. Yeah. And also I think the fact that that can change in such a short period of time should give hope as well, I think, for people who want... A, a program like Safe Schools or the intentions of Safe Schools to be met that um, even if now it seems hard and it seems like there's opposition and it's been dragging on, um, that we can be looking back in 10 years' time and going, wasn't it crazy that we had all those debates about Safe Schools and the kinds of activities that they were proposing because now, like, obviously you would have that. Okay, just to finish up then, there's been this massive victory that in tr- that involved a tremendous amount of activism and mobilised people who wouldn't perhaps previously have thought of themselves as activists, as you said, putting out rainbow flags all through the suburbs, putting up posters or whatever. Where to now with that energy? What is the next demand? Where where do we take this, this sentiment from here? Yeah, it, it's going to be... It's going to be a challenge to um, convert that activism around that very specific demand into broader um, support for LGBTIQ um, programs or or legislation or um, services because it's less of a direct impact and you're not asking, you know, you're not being asked to be involved like you were in the in the postal survey. Um, 
But I think there is grounds now to build, uh, you know, demands for things like better provision for homeless LGBTIQ people, better provisions around transgender care, on the basis that you can have the confidence that there is at least this level of support for equality amongst um, the population of whatever state government you're trying to get things out of or or federally or even at a local level. I think that the defensiveness that has been part of, I think, the LGBTIQ bureaucracies for many years, and I've been part of it, the sort of starting position of, we're really sorry to ask, and you know, we know that this is difficult, or it might be controversial, but do you mind just helping could us you, out? Could, a you, possibly could you, you possibly, if you possibly, please? And yeah. you know, we don't have to make a big deal out of it or whatever. Uh, I think we can, we should lose some of that. Um, we should be more forthright about what is needed in the community. And we should use the victory as a springboard for all sorts of different things. Um, I don't think it necessarily needs to be a singular demand, but there are some strange contradictions, like the Victorian government has religious exemptions still enshrined in law um, that can have an effect in schools and in the provision of services. So there are you know, ways to use um, the current political moment to start making a case. Yes, or the queer asylum seekers currently on Menace Island, for instance. Exactly, yeah. We've been talking about the result of the postal plebiscite and um, related issues with Ros Ward, co-founder of Safe Schools. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me.